We do welcome you today. So glad you're here on this Father's Day. Uh, if you are a father, I would ask you to stand at this time. Would you stand to your feet? I just want to recognize you for just a moment. Uh, if you would, just remain standing. Uh, we have a gift for you when you leave today. I think this is a really cool gift, and I appreciate our staff putting this uh, thought together. And so this is a tire gauge. Uh, some of you millennials may not know what this is, but this is something you put into the stem of the tire. You can check the tire pressure. Blessed is the man who works tire tirelessly for the Lord. So this is a gift for you. And uh, you guys know all about that. And so when you uh, exit today, if you would go, they're in these little uh, containers, little boxes. So please go and get one of those. I know we've prayed a couple times today, but I want to pray again for you men. If you would, just please remain uh, standing. I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you. and just want you to, to receive it, okay? Father, we thank you for the day. Thank you for this special day where we celebrate fatherhood. Thank you for all these men that are standing on their feet today. Some of them, Lord, are great grandfathers. Some are grandfathers like myself for the very first time. And all of us, Lord, standing are, are men who you have blessed us with children. And God, we, we recognize the gravity of that and how, uh, Lord, we, none of us are up to that task. We need you, God. We need your help. Uh, we need your strength. We need your patience. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit of God to fill us so that we could be the men of God, the fathers uh, Lord, that you have called us to be to our children and grandchildren. So, Lord, for each man that is standing, I, I'm just asking you to bless them today. God, may today be a very special day today. May they feel special. May they walk in great freedom and victory through Jesus Christ. May they know that, uh, Lord, we appreciate them at Great Hills. Lord, I look upon these men as the backbone, really, of our church and of our culture, our society, and how we need them desperately need them to be men of righteousness and men of God. I know we're not perfect, Lord, and I know we need your forgiveness, Lord. We pray that you'd forgive us, cleanse us, and help us to be, God, those men, those husbands, those dads that you've called us to be. And we pray this, and we believe it in Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen. All right. Y'all go ahead and have a seat. My name is Danny Forsheed, pastor here at Great Hills Baptist Church, and we are delighted and that you're here on this Father's Day. I know we have many people out. I know we have some who are out on mission trips. We have many of our people out on vacation. But I'm just thrilled for the people that are here today. And also, many of you are watching uh, live stream, whether it's Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. And we're really glad that you have tuned us in. We'll have as many as uh, 300 people who are worshiping the Lord with us. Not here physically but they are there electronically. And we would say to you, if you're in the Austin area, uh, we'd love for you to come anytime. We worship together at 11 o'clock on Sundays, 9.30. We have our connect groups. We would love for you to come. Daniel Webster Whittle was his name. He was 20 years of age, and he was fighting the, the Civil War. He was 20 years of age. Can you imagine that for just a minute? 20 years of age. And you're fighting. He happened to be a major in the Union Army. He was fighting against the South in this bitter, bloody war that we know as the Civil War. And Daniel Webster Whittle had a godly family, a godly mom. And she gave him a New Testament and said, please take this. You're going to need it. And he said, sure, mom. And he put it in his pocket and he never read it. And he was in battle after battle until, true story, Daniel Webster Whittle was shot in the arm. And he had to have this arm amputated from the elbow down. And he found himself in a hospital, in a Union hospital in Richmond, Virginia. 
And he, he was there and he said, you know, my mom gave me a Bible. I think it's probably time I start reading it. And so he gets the Bible out and he begins to read it. And he read it many times. He read it so many times as an unbeliever, not a Christian, that a nurse came up to him and said, uh, Mr. Whittle, there is a young man, 18 years of age. I do not think he's going to make it through the night. He is crying. He is pleading. He is needing God. He needs help. And I want you to go over and minister to him and share the gospel with him. And Whittle said, ma'am, I can't do that. I'm not even a Christian. And she said, what do you mean you're not a Christian? You've been reading your Bible here for days. And he said, I, I, no, I'm, I'm not a follower of Christ. I'm very interested though. And she said, you need to go talk to this guy. And so Daniel Webster Whittle said, you know, I felt, and I want to read what he literally said. He said, I stood there and I heard the pleadings from this young man. And I heard God say to my soul by his spirit, just as plainly as if he had spoken in audible tones, you know the way of salvation. Get right down on your knees and accept Christ and pray for this boy. I dropped upon my knees. I went and held the boy's hand in mine, and as in a few broken words, I confessed my sins. And I asked God, for Christ's sake, please forgive me of my sins. I believe right then and there that He did forgive me and that I was Christ's child. And then I prayed earnestly for the boy. He became quiet, and he pressed my hand as I pleaded the promises. When I arose from my knees, he was dead. A look of peace was upon his face. And I can but believe that God, now listen to this part, this is beautiful, that God who used him to bring me to my Savior used me to get his attention fixed upon Christ and to lead him to trust in his precious blood and I hope to meet him in heaven. Daniel Webster Whittle when he finished fighting in the Civil War, he became a very successful businessman. In fact, he became the treasurer for a company, a watch company called the Elgin Watch Company. And he was a very successful businessman. And God called him, oftentimes this happens, God called Daniel Webster Whittle to be a, well, to be in the gospel ministry. And so he became an evangelist. Uh, he became a Bible teacher, but we know him, or many of us of the older generation, we know him as a great song writer. He wrote a song that goes something like this, there shall be showers of blessing. This is the promise of love. There shall be seasons refreshing sent from the Savior above. There shall be showers of blessing, precious reviving again over the hills and the valleys, sound of abundance of rain. There shall be showers of blessing, send them upon us, O God. Grant to us now a refreshing. And when I was studying Acts chapter 3, and I saw this word in Acts 3, 19, I saw the word refreshing. And my mind went back many, many years ago as a young boy singing this song, there shall be showers of blessing, oh, that today they might fall. You remember that song? Does that help you? Showers of blessing. And I read that text and I thought, that's, I wonder if Daniel Webster Whittle was looking at Acts 3.19 when he wrote this, this hymn. Grant to us now a refreshing, come and now honor thy word. There shall be showers of blessing, oh, that today they might fall. Now as to God we're confessing, now as on Jesus we call. 
There shall be showers of blessing if we but trust and obey. There shall be seasons, here it comes again, he uses the same word of refreshing, if we let God have his way. And here's the refrain, the chorus, showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. When I read Acts chapter 3, I read an amazing sermon where the Apostle Peter, with the boldness and the, the fervor of God, he preaches a message, and we have it in verses 11 through 26. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 3, 19, because we're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago as we're studying this message of Peter. And we'll read 19, and it really is the key linchpin verse that we're going to study, and then we're going to go throughout the remainder of the chapter, and we'll finish Acts chapter 3 today. And this is a great sermon. The Apostle Peter, he preaches there in Jerusalem. You say, now, wait a minute, didn't he just preach not long ago? Yes. He preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 40. You can read that sermon where 3,000 people prayed to receive Christ, and they were baptized, and the church went from 120 to 3,000 in one sermon. How about that? And now Peter's preaching another sermon in Solomon's colonnade there in the temple. And as he preaches verses 11 through 19, he is, wow, I mean, it is a sermon on fire. He is rebuking the Jews. He said, you Jews have crucified the Christ. You surrendered him over to Pontius Pilate, and God sent him to be your Savior, to be your rescuer, and yet you crucified him on the cross. And I mean, the Apostle Peter, he was not into these feel-good kind of sermons. He was like, man, he is going to share with them the Word of God with boldness and conviction. And in this sermon, though, he goes a little further. He moves out of the, of the conviction, if you will, to the refreshing and the blessing. And, and you read about it in verses 19 through 26, and we're going to read it in a moment. It is such a powerful sermon. You say, well, how did that turn out for Peter? How did Peter's sermon that I'm about to read to you, how did that turn out for him? Did many people get saved? Did anybody respond to the invitation? How about 5,000 men on Father's Day? I thought that was interesting. Five, one, two, three, zeros. 5,000 men, Acts 4, 4, responded. I don't know how many women or children responded, but it's interesting that the gospel writer Luke, the physician, the first-rate historian, says 5,000 men prayed to receive Christ. So what did Peter say? I mean, what did he say that was so convicting, that was so moving, that was so penetrating to the hearts and the minds of the Jewish audience that 5,000 of them said, we surrender to Christ? What did he say? Thank you for asking. I want to read it to you, okay? Acts chapter 3, let's pick up in verse 19. He said, repent. When's the last time you heard that in a sermon in America? <laughs> you don't hear that word very often in, in sermons and homiletics sprinkled across our nation today. You say, because if you use the word repent, that means you have sinned. And if I stand up here and call us sinners, that means that we're not right, that we need help, that we need a Savior, we need a Redeemer. And Peter says, that's right, you bunch of guilty reprobates, you need to, you need to repent. Turn from your sin and be converted. By, by the way, both of those are the imperative mood in the Greek New Testament, that your sins may be blotted out. So there shall be seasons refreshing. So that there can be times of refreshing. 
that these times may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send Jesus Christ, who was preached. Karux is the Greek word. It means to proclaim, to be a herald, that this Christ was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of His holy prophets since the world began. Look at that verse again, verse 21. I was reading it again early this morning, just thinking about it and ruminating on the sermon that I was about to preach, and I, I saw the word all, and I thought, wow, all God? All the prophets, they spoke about the coming of this Messiah. And then Peter begins to give examples. Moses, he said. Moses truly talked about him. He said to the fathers, and, and by the way, Peter is about to quote Genesis, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15, 18, and 19. And some of your translations may have it in quotations. Yes, we do there. See it? For Moses truly said to the fathers, quotation mark, the Lord your God, he will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, Peter says, that's what Moses said. And all the prophets, again, there's that word A-L-L. -L. I was like, all of them, God? Yeah, all of them. Major prophets, minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, come over to the minor prophets, Daniel, Micah, Hosea, Joel, Habakkuk, all the prophets they have this prophetic element to them where they're going to talk about the coming of the Messiah. And he mentions the, one of the foremost, one of the first prophets, Samuel. Remember him? He reigned during the time of the reign of the kings, David and Solomon. So Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. And that's what prophets do, right? They speak a prophetic word. God gives it to them and they speak about the coming days, the days of Messiah, the days of when God will send a rescuer, a redeemer who will come from heaven. And all the prophets speak about him. And then Peter says, you people, there's a holy hush here, I think. Hey, Peter, the apostle, he's preaching the word of God. He's quoting entire sections of the Old Testament. You are the sons of the prophets. And you, my friends, of the covenant which God made with our fathers saying to Abraham, quotation, now we've gone from Moses to Samuel, now to Abraham. This is a very biblical message, if you will. This is a message saturated, deeply marinated in the Word of God. And for Peter, the Word of God was what? The Old Testament. And now he's referencing and he's, he's going back into the, the Scriptures. And, and by the way, if you're a preacher here today, I submit to you the greatest sermon you'll ever preach is a sermon that is built on the Bible, okay? Not on your philosophy, not on your ideology. I know you're brilliant. I know you're smart. I know you're charismatic. I know you're winsome and all that. And so what? The greatest sermon you can ever preach will be sermons that are deeply rooted in the Bible. And this is exactly what Peter does. You say, yeah, really, but what? You preach sermons like that. I mean, really, is anybody going to respond? How about 5,000 men? 5,000 men are going to respond. Abraham. And he quotes him in Genesis, by the way, 12, 3. This is a verbatim quote of Genesis 12, 3. 
and in you, your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow. To you first, Israel, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to what? Bless you. God loves you. He's not against you. He sent the rescuer, the redeemer, Christ, to come and save and, and deliver and take all of our sins. Even though we crucified him with our sins, Jesus Christ bore those sins. He, he bore them to Calvary's cross and he died. He arose from the dead. And now he invites you to turn, turn away every one of you from your what? Your sins or your iniquities. Acts 3, 19 through 26, Peter's second sermon there in the temple precinct, and what a sermon it was. So I want to take a few moments of your time, and I want to look at four key components of this last part of the sermon, and all of them were prefaced with the word times. Times of, for example, number one, refreshing. There shall be times of refreshing. But before there's time of refreshing or cleansing in verse 19, Peter tells them that we have sinned, you have sinned, I have sinned against God. And aren't you glad for Bible preachers like Peter who were unashamed and they were emboldened by the Spirit of God? Their popularity, they didn't really care about that. They didn't care about being popular with other homileticians or theologians. They were, they were more concerned about being popular with God, if you will, to speak what God would have them speak. And Peter says, I'm telling you men, you people here today, you crucified the Christ and you placed him upon the cross. You had an opportunity to take him down, but you didn't. And God holds, listen, God sent Jesus he holds you accountable for your sins. What are you going to do about it? And, and those men are like, oh, I don't know. What am I going to do? I mean, that was the Messiah. And Peter says, I know, but watch this. In the majesty of God, in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, he's going to take your dastardly deed. He's going to take what you did in ignorance and Jesus Christ in His grace and in His mercy, He's going to pay the price with His blood so that you in your guiltiness, and you are culpable, you are very guilty, here's what you can do. You can get forgiveness, you can go to heaven. All you got to do is say, God, I am so sorry. I did this. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I repent. That's it. And when they did that, and when they repented, and they said, metanoia, it means to go this way. And I'm so sorry, God. I, you know, when's the last time we were sorry for our sins? That we said, Lord, I'm, I'm very sorry. That is egregious. That, I know that broke your heart, and I'm, I apologize. And please forgive me. And man, I tell you, as Peter's preaching this sermon, he first of all gives them bad news before he can give them good news. And I like what one writer says when he says, conviction of sin is the first step toward repentance. But how can a person repent if he doesn't think he's done anything wrong? We have to preach the bad news before anybody will be ready for the good news. So first of all, these are times of refreshing. He is preaching a gospel of repentance. And he says, and if you do this, I want to show you two things that you will receive. Number one, he says, their sins will be blotted out. Did you see that in verse 19? Your sins will be blotted out. Now, the word blot there, it literally means to smear or to obliterate. Now, back then, ink, 
It did not have the acid that ink has today. And so when you put ink on a papyrus or a parchment, it didn't seep deep within the contents, okay? Because it didn't have the acid quality that ink has today. So you could take a damp cloth and you could dip it in water and you could, y'all watch me doing this. You could do this right here. And all of a sudden that ink would dissolve and it would be as if there was nothing ever written on that parchment. And Peter says, that's what God does for you. That's what God does for me in my soul and in my spirit. He takes the precious blood of Jesus and he applies it to our sin and God forgives us and he cleanses us so much that he can say, what sin? As if justified, as if we had never sinned. He said, so if you repent, times of refreshing, number one, your sins will be blotted out. Number two, he says, times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. I do have a verse. I want to read it to you. It's Isaiah 1, 18. I think we have it up here on the screen. Look at that. Church, would you look at that? Come now, the prophet says, and let us think about it. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. As Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. They will be blotted out from the blood of Christ. Number two, there will be refreshing, the times of refreshing. The Greek word is kairos time. This is not a chronology time, chronos time of, of literal seconds, hours, months, so forth. This is a season. This is a milieu, if you will, an epic, an era of times of refreshing. This, this time of visitation as the, really the key that unlocks the power of God, the visit of God, the key is repent. And when we repent, he says, we shall receive seasons refreshing. And it, this word refreshing literally means to recover your breath or to experience revival. Man, what a message. Repent and God will bless you. He will give you conversion. He will give you sins blotted out. He will give you times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. And I, I like to look upon it like this. This is a this is an offer of God for what I call a divine exchange where God gives me a second chance. God gives me a chance for eternity. And all I have to do in this life is to recognize that I'm far from God, that I've violated God's commandments. I've broken all of His commandments, and God, I'm sorry. And, and isn't that true, men especially here today? Isn't this true when, when we turn from God and we just get ourselves in a mess, Right? We, we think we can handle life on our own. We think we can be these great dads and these great husbands on our own. We just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, man. We just, we can handle it. I mean, we're a raw bone, individualist, American red-blooded male, and we can just handle it all. But the truth is we cannot. It's impossible for us to be men of God, great dads or great husbands, because why? Because we're so stinking selfish. We're so selfish that we, we can't be those men that our families deserve. And Jesus says, well, I've got a deal for you. <laughs> you can't, but I can. You ask for forgiveness, and my spirit will come into you, and I will cleanse you, and I will make you the man of God that you ought to be. No, you're not going to be perfect. And all the wives said, amen. Even though he loves the Lord, he ain't perfect. I know, I get it. But aren't you glad he's forgiven? and that he loves God, and he loves you, and he's in church today. So these are times of refreshing. Number two is times of restoration. And this is verses 20 and 21. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you, whom heaven must receive until, here it is, you ready? The times 
of restoration of all things. Oh, there's that word all again. God is going to restore all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now watch what Peter does here. This is very fascinating. He moves out of the prophets proclaiming the first coming of Christ. Now, what a stroke of genius. Now, he says, by the way, all those mighty men, those prophets that you and I dearly love, they also and even prophesied the return of this Messiah who is going to come. And you can read about it. And I've given you some examples, Isaiah chapter 11, chapter 35, Ezekiel, all of Ezekiel 40 through 48 with the millennial kingdom, the millennial temple. Read that. You'll see it. It has not happened yet. Zechariah chapter 6, 12 and 13. Let me read this one to you. Times of restoration where God restores all things. Then speak to him saying, thus says the Lord of hosts saying, behold the man. This is the Messiah. His name is Branch. From his place, he will branch out. Now watch this. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. This is the millennial temple, the thousand-year reign of Christ. He will bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on the throne, on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So Peter is referencing here these prophecies of the Messiah who would not only come the first time, but he's going to come a second time, whom heaven must receive. Do you see that? That's the key. He's in heaven now. He's already come, but he's coming again until the times of restoration. Now watch this. This is when the apostles' question in Acts 1-6 will be answered. Remember that question? Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said, hold on, chill out. We're not talking about that now. Now, the Holy Spirit's about to come and you're going to be my witnesses. But here in Acts chapter 3, you get a glimpse of the answer of the question of the apostles in Acts 1-6. This is when the kingdom is restored. This is when the Son of God comes. This is when He reigns upon this earth. And when you read the book of Isaiah, you cannot understand it. Unless you are in, your, your theology moves beyond the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ when He reigns here on this earth. Are you here to tell me, Brother Dan, that Jesus Christ is really coming again and all the bad is going to become good and all the wrongs are going to become right? You mean to tell me that Jesus Christ is physically, viscerally, bodily coming again and that I'm supposed to put my hope and faith and trust in that? Let me tell you something, my friend. Absolutely He's coming again. Yes, the answer is yes. And I'm looking for that day, aren't you? Praise God that day of all days when the Son of God comes and reigns upon this earth. And I'm, for one, are excited. And it's interesting, verse 21, he uses not the Greek word kairos, but he uses the Greek word chronos, whom heaven must receive until that time. Now that's a date. That's a moment. That's a second when Jesus Christ, when he comes again. F.F. Bruce, a noted, eminent New Testament theologian. I love the way he, he references, the way he can say things. Listen to this brief little quote. The gospel, the gospel blessings destined to flow from Jesus' death and resurrection. These blessings, showers of blessings, these blessings must spread throughout the whole world. And then, and not until then, will Jesus return from the right hand of power, end of quote. Times of refreshing, and now here we have 
these times of restoration. But let me move a little further into his sermon and look at times of convincing. In verses 22 through 25, this is some of the greatest preaching you will ever hear in your life. You say, well, wait up. Don't, don't hurt your arm patting yourself on the back there, Brother Danny. Well, let me tell you something. I'm not talking about Brother Danny. I'm talking about Peter's sermon. This is Pete. You say, well, you are a plagiarist little preacher. You're preaching somebody else's sermon. Guilty. I'm guilty. I am preaching the Apostle Peter's sermon. And Peter is preaching the sermon of Moses and the sermon of Samuel and the sermon of Abraham. And when preachers go deep into the Word of God and pull out and excerpts from Scripture and memorize those Scripture, and when we are faithful to the biblical text and we have this expositional moment or this textual-driven moment, let me tell you, friends, this is where the power of God resides on a Sunday morning because it's the sacred liturgy. It's the sacred text where we as preachers, and this is why I believe many of my friends, many of my preacher friends, we're like, well, you know, I, I got to help it. I, I got to doctor it up. I mean, people don't want to, Brother Danny, people are not going to come for 45 minutes and listen to you talk about Greek and Hebrew and talk about Moses and Samuel. Come on now, I mean, brother, you got to spice it up a little bit. I don't have no spices. I'm telling you, all I've got is this sacred book. And if I will be faithful just to teach it with humility and obedience, here's what happens. God says, okay, watch what I'll do. Then God works. God saves people. God, God, does, God gets churches out of debt. God does amazing things when you honor and teach and just humbly preach the Bible. Now, watch what he does. Now, in preaching, you, I'm going to give you all a basic sermon on sermons. When you go hear a preacher, I think you should, should listen to him. And I think it was John Broadus who said, every great sermon has explanation, illustration. And Broadus said the most important thing is application. But then I would add something to that, and it's called argumentation. There really is an element of logic, cogent logic, simple syllogism when Luke records the sermon of Peter there at Solomon's Colonnade, times of refreshing, yes, times of restoration, yes, but now, watch this, these are times of convincing. See, Peter is like Jesus' attorney, and he is going to prosecute his case, and he's going to do it by appealing to the authority of the Old Testament, and again, you got you to look at the fruit of what he did. The fruit is what he did is all these people got saved. And so we need to look at what did Peter say? Well, first of all, he said, I appeal to you, Moses. Now, everybody knew who Moses was. He was the great lawgiver. He was the great leader of the Exodus. And I shared a few weeks ago, and I want to share it again today, that the single most climactic, momentous miracle in all the Old Testament, unquestionably, it was the Exodus. You point back to the Exodus because that's when God redeemed Israel, took them out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, and it is a type. It points to a greater Exodus when a far greater prophet than Moses would come. The Messiah would come and he would lift his people out of Egypt, out of the sin and the depths of depravity, and he would raise us up to a people of God, a royal treasure of his own, and he would lead us to heaven. And so Peter says, watch this, Moses even said about Jesus. 
And he said these words, and, and again, you can read it, it's, it's verbatim, Deuteronomy 18:15. For Moses truly said, verse 22, quotation, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. You say, did Moses, I mean, is he prophesying? And in Deuteronomy, he is prophesying about Jesus unequivocally, yes. You say, how do you know that, Brother Danny? Because that's what Peter said. Peter is presenting this argument that Jesus really is the Messiah, and he's basing it upon the very words of Moses. A prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. Now watch this. He shall be, and it shall be that every soul that does not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So let me, t- let me time out for just a second. Peter here is going to become what many in our culture, in our postmodern culture, would say that is highly insensitive. That is highly intolerant, myopic, that is very provincial, that is very limited, that is very close-minded, because if I understand you correctly, Peter is quoting Moses, and Moses and Peter are saying that the prophet of God is coming, his name, yes, it is Jesus Christ, and if you don't believe in him and you reject him, you condemn your soul to eternal hell. Well, I don't know if I particularly like that. Well, guess what? Guess what? It's the truth. And you take your postmodern mind for just a moment. There's no truth. There's no absolute truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And, and instead of judging the Bible by your postmodernity, judge your postmodernity by, by the Bible. Again, this is a presupposition that you still believe the Bible. <laughs> If you don't believe in the Bible, then believe whatever you want to believe. Everything's relative. Everything is up, and up for debate. But if you believe the Bible and Moses and Jesus and Peter and all the apostles, then you must, you must say John 14, 6 is right. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What about the last part? Nobody goes to heaven except they come through me. You say, boy, that's audacious. That is bold. That's very limited. Well, what about, uh, what about all these other religions? And what about all these other philosophers? What about all these other ways to God? And Jesus said, they're false. I am the way, the truth. And again, it's not braggadocious. It's not arrogance. If it's right, if it's right, it's right. Tom Brady is the best quarterback to have ever played the game. No, I don't like Tom Brady. No, I wish, I wish Joe Montana was still the greatest of Roger Staubach. But it doesn't matter. The proof is in the number of Super Bowls. I can argue all I want to argue, but Tom Brady's still the best quarterback that's ever played the game. You're like, I don't like, I don't, I don't like that. It's the truth. He appeals to Moses. Then he's going to appeal to Samuel. And this is brilliant. This is brilliance on the part of Peter. 2 Samuel 12, 13, remember what that verse says? Let me read it to you. It's beautiful. When your days are fulfilled, Samuel said, and David, you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, I'm going to stop there for just a minute. Yes, he's talking about Solomon, but there's this double futuristic element in what Samuel is saying. 
And you say, how do you know that? Because verse 13 says, he shall build a house for my name. And Solomon did. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's that last word, church? Forever. Did Solomon live forever? No. Did the posterity, the lineage, the offspring of David, was it not Jesus Christ? Did it not say in Revelation 5 that he is the root and the offspring of David? And so Peter is preaching this message. He's, he's engaged now in deep syllogism with argumentation. I know there are people out there, you don't really believe this, you're not buying this, so I'm going to demonstrate to you from your own sacred literature that Jesus Christ really is the Messiah. Moses said he was, Samuel said he was, and if you're still, if you're still debating me, then let me go to Father Abraham. Oh, that's right. Some of them are going, now nah, you're talking, brother. You can't appeal to none greater than the progenitor Abraham. I mean, he is the father of Judaism. What does Abraham have to say about this person, Jesus? And Peter says, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Let me tell you what the Bible says. And he says this, I will bless those who bless you. Genesis 12, 3, I will curse those who curse you. And in you, Abraham, mm -mm. I'm just having a fine time with the word all today. I don't know if you notice that. All the families, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 22, 18, in your seed, Abraham, all the nations, come, come now. What is this? How could it be that in, through one person's posterity and their lineage that all the world is going to be blessed? In your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. But did the New Testament writers understand it the same way that we're understanding it? Now watch this. This is Galatians. This is Galatians 3.16. Paul understood it precisely the way Peter understood it, precisely the way I am trying to communicate it today on Father's Day in June of 2019. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say to seeds. Are you with me? Are y'all with me? Yeah, but there are many ways to God. No, there's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's one seed as a, no, one seed and to your seed. And then Paul is if, if y'all are, are still confused about it, I want to tell you, it's Jesus the Christ. Wow. Wow. Samuel, Moses, Abraham. Man, I, I can just see it in my mind's eye. There's this holy hush, and now, and now people are thinking deeply. I mean, they're, they're rubbing those long beards. If I had one, I'd rub it, but I don't have one. I'll never have one. But anyhow, they're rubbing those beards, and they're considering, could this fisherman, could he be right? Could he be right? And the Jesus that we crucified, and now they're claiming rose from the dead, could he really be? And then this is what they said. We believe. That's what they said. That's all, they, that's all they said. They said, we believe. You know, I think a dynamic equivalent for me today, if I were to be a lecturer, if I were to be teaching in a university or a secular school or, or a Christian school, and, and I had the, the, the presupposition or at least the postulation, let's say, did Christianity have any bearing upon the foundation 
of America? Now, that is a good question. That is a highly debated question today, by the way. And so if I was going to present a case that Christianity did have an influence upon the founding of the United States of America, well, here's what I would need to do, right? I would need to go to the sources. I would need to go to the Abrahams and the Moses and the prophets and Samuel. And by the way, we have their names. That would be Jefferson, Hamilton, Washington, Lincoln, uh, Madison, uh, Jackson. Did any of those founding fathers have anything to say about how Christianity was steeped into Islam? We need to check it out. Or, I'm sorry, in Buddhism. Or, or Christianity, which one was it? And if I'm a lecturer and I'm doing my homework, I'm saying, okay, I'm going to go research these guys and I'm going to find out what they said and then I'm going to go to the nation's capital and I'm going to look for quotes from the Quran and I'm going to look for quotes from other religious entities and leaders and whatever is the most proliferate, whatever is there and I can't argue with it and then that's how I'm going to draw my conclusion. So that's what I did and I have done this. Not to the extent of a David Barton or others, but one writer put it this way in his book, Rediscovering God in America. He says, this walking tour of the nation's capital is a rebuttal to those who seek to write God out of American history. Step by step, you will see the concrete case for defending the place that America has always acknowledged for the Creator in our public life. George Washington said, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God and to obey His will. Benjamin Franklin said, God governs in the affairs of men, and if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it has been probable that an empire can rise without God's aid. Abraham Lincoln said, I'm profitably engaged in reading the Bible. The Bible. Take all of this book upon reason that you can, and the balance by faith, and you will live and die a better man. Andrew Jackson said, the rock upon which the Republic of the United States of America rests is the Word of God. Now, I'm just quoting to you what the founding fathers, what the authorities had to say. And if I am preaching a message upon the correlation between Christianity and the founding of America, then I will need to go to the original sources. And I think it's Perry Miller. And y'all need to question me on this because I can't, my mind, I'm trying to go back, but I just can't remember completely. But I do, I'm almost 98.3% sure that Perry Miller, Harvard University said that the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield in 1740 was the galvanizing moment for the birth of America. And he said this because he believed, now this is a scholar from, from, from Harvard who said that these, the, there was this revival from Maine in the north to Georgia in the south, and in this revival movement of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it so coalesced our nascent nation. It so formed this embryonic group of people that it enabled them to fight and withstand the British Empire. And I believe Perry Miller is right. So, am I presenting my case? Am I presenting a good argument that at least, at least there is a modicum of correlation between the Judeo-Christianity in the Old and the New Testament and the founding of the United States of America? I think you'd have to agree with me, yes, there is. Yes, there is. And if you don't agree with me, then you will need to go to those same sources and you need to research it, and you need to find excerpts of atheism and Islam and 
uh, all the other world religions like Buddhism and Confucianism, and you need to find those quotes. I want to tell you something. You're going to have a hard time finding them. That's exactly what Peter did. And he did it in a far more profound, watch this, eloquent and eternal significant way. Because we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about whether you uh, b- believe in those founding fathers and what they said or not. You want to redact history and that's just your opinion. No, no, no. We're not talking about that. We're, listen to this. Are you ready for this? I am talking about where you are going to go when you die. When you die. And when you die, And your spirit goes before the eternal throne of God and, and God says, why should I let you hear? What in heaven's name are you going to say? What are you going to do? You're stripped bare. There's nobody but you and God, the eternal God. It is appointed unto man one time to die and then he's judged by God. And you say, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in judgment. That's just all a bunch of man-made fairy tale. Okay, I think you're wrong. I think there is a God. I think there is a judgment. And I think we're all going to appear before him. Uh, Hebrews 9, 27. What are you going to say? What are you going to do? And you're looking at heaven and glory and mansions and man, eternal God being with him forever. And the alternative really stinketh. Are you with me? It stinks of the smoldering fires of hell. Do you want to go there? No, 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 I don't think so. But I want to be with you, God. And God says, well, what was your life like on earth? Oh, Lord, that doesn't matter, does it? I mean, here you are. I'm here. Woohoo! You created me. Let me on in. And God says, but how was life on earth? Did, did you know me? Did you know my son? Did you serve me? Did you live for me? Did you even know me? I'm going to tell you what I'd want to say, guys. I already, I already got it rehearsed. I've already got it scripted. I'm dying, boom, dead, up into the presence of God. And I think all of that that I just described to you is going to be there, and I'm just going to do this. I'm going to say... Jesus. That's all I'm going to say. That's it. Ding, 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 ding. You got the right answer, brother, on Jeopardy, Will of Fortune, all of them combined. You come on in to glory because it's not what you have done. It's what my son has done for you. That's, that's how we go. That's how we go into heaven. There, there is, there's no other answer. I'm telling you, if there was another answer, I would give it to you. The Bible says, I am accountable to your everlasting soul. When I preach to you at Great Hills Baptist Church, I am accountable for what you know in your soul and your discipleship and your depth of knowing God. And if there's another way and if there was any other ideology or philosophy or theology that would get you through this life into the presence of God, then I assure you, I would read it, I would exegete it, I would study it, I would live it myself, and then I would share it every Sunday with you. But glory to God, there is no other way but Jesus' way and the Word of God and that, that is what I'm sharing with you. And I know it's unpopular. I, I know it's not in vogue. And I know we're living in Austin, Texas. I get all of that. But the truth is still the truth. And as hard as I try, two plus two never equals five. It never does. It equals four. But I don't know if I agree with you about that, Brother Danny. There's many ways to look at two plus two. What is plus? What is is? We are so open-minded, our everlasting brains have fallen out of our craniums. We, 
We, we are open to everything and everybody except Jesus. When Jesus said, I am the way, look at me. Has anybody, anybody ever died for your soul? Anybody? Anybody ever conquered the raw, ugly throat of death? Has anybody ever said, I will give you everlasting peace and life and joy. All you got to do is trust in me. I'm telling you, nobody could do that because every person born under heaven were sinners except one, the God-man. Jesus never sinned, and he presented himself as a holy sacrifice so that we as sinners could be made clean through his blood. Now, last point, and I'm just going to say it briefly. It's called times of blessing. It's in verse 26, and I'll summarize it very quickly like this. Peter tells the Jews, this all has come to you first. And it's very true. Matthew 15, 24, Jesus said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation unto the, anybody? Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so Peter is saying, it, this is for you. To you, verse 26, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, bless you, times of blessing, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. He preached repentance, Peter did. The first sermon, recorded sermon of Jesus in Mark 1.15, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 2, said, repent. Paul in Acts 17.30 says, repent. They all have the same theme. And the theme is, God is right. I'm not right. God is perfect. I'm very imperfect. God is just and holy. I'm very sinful. So God, I repent. I blew it. I messed up. I need your help and your forgiveness. And God says, welcome. That's all I wanted you to say. That's, that's all I ask of you is that you turn away from your sin and you embrace me. And God is so good that in his grace and in his mercy, he enables us to do that. I don't understand how all that happens. I just know God is amazing and he is gracious and just and kind. And, but he always leaves a pot spot for me. Am I going to believe? Am I going to repent? And if I do, then welcome Welcome to the family of God. 2 Peter 3, 9 is the last verse. I'm going to read it, and we'll have our invitation. Look at this verse. Come on, dads, watch this. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some of us are, <laughs> as some count slackness, but God is very patient toward us. He is not willing that any of us should ever perish, but that all should come to, what's the last word? repentance. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray to the Lord. And I'm going to invite you, if you're here today, you've never repented of your sins. You've never genuinely said, Lord, I am eternally sorry for the things I have said and done and spoken and thought. Lord, my heart is steeped in sin and I need, I need a divine cleansing. I I need an agent that is stronger and more powerful, a detergent that is much more powerful than the stain of my clothing. Jesus, would you pardon me? Would you forgive me of my sins? Oh, listen, friend, if you do that, 
You say, Brother Dana, I'm not so sure. If I didn't know better, I, thought, I would think you're up there arguing the case for Christ. And, and you're, you're really pleading as if Peter was pleading that you really want people to be saved. And that's exactly right. Nothing would give me more joy. I've thought about this often. As Peter preached this sermon in Acts 4.4, you can read it later. It says, 5,000 men received Christ. I would take five. No, no, really, I would. Maybe I'm thinking too small. Maybe I should think 50 or 15 or 500. I don't, I don't know who all hears this sermon. I don't know how far around the world this sermon is going to go through technology, but I'm thrilled to God. I'm thrilled at Great Hills Baptist Church on this Father's Day, June 16th. There may be five men in this room today who would say, Lord, forgive me. I'm so sorry. This is for me, God, this sermon. I don't know, Lord, if it's for anybody else, but it's for me, and I repent. And I believe. Would you do that today? If you do, if your heart is in it and you're willing, the Bible says that times of refreshing are going to come. Your sins will be blotted out. You say, I'm ready. What do I need to do? You just need to call upon the name of the Lord. Do something like this. Say, dear God, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. By faith, I turn to Jesus as the only source salvation. Lord, I believe. If you do that, the Bible says that you would be born again by His Spirit. It says you will be justified and redeemed. It says that your name is recorded forever in the Lamb's book of life. Hallelujah. What a deal. What a deal. You get rid of your sin problem and you get heaven. Good night. Man, that's like taking an investment and buying $5 worth of stock and selling it for a million dollars a share. I mean, you can't get a better deal than that. I mean, God, almighty God is saying, believe on my son. Trust in him and salvation will come to you. Please, friend, please don't try to rationalize it. If you try to figure it all out and you try to understand every single thing, you will never come to God in heaven. You will spend eternity in hell thinking, debating, and rationalizing. Believe. Believe. Trust in God. Right now, I plead with you. I plead with you. Maybe you're here today and you're not of the male gender. It is absolutely okay if you get saved also. I mean, you may be here and you may be a woman and you may be a female. You may be a young a young man, you may not be a dad, but this message is for all who would listen and believe. Is there not enough evidence? Is there not enough conviction? Would you believe even now? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you've reserved it, preserved it. It continues to be the number one best-selling book all over this globe, all over this planet. And Lord, we know why, because it is the voice of God. It is the reason of God. It's the love letter of God that you so loved us that you gave your only begotten Son. And whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And God, we thank you. We praise you. And Lord, we do pray for those, especially those men that are here today. I thank you, God. I believe many of them are going to get saved today. I believe whether it's on the live stream or live people right here, right now, I believe. I'm trusting you, God that there will be people saved. Great Hills Baptist Church, with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, would you join me in this prayer? Would you, would you pray with me to the God of heaven to save people? Would you join with me right now? Just pray, pray in your heart of hearts. Pray in Jesus' name that God would save people today.
For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you. You're so attentive. Thank you for loving God's Word. Let's stand up. Let's sing praise to Him. Corey's going to lead us in a what we call an invitation song. We invite you to receive Christ. If you're here today and you do have questions and you, you do want to think more and ponder more and, and talk to somebody, come. Let one of our staff, one of our decision counselors, one of our deacons, let, let them talk to you. Let them pray for you. But hey, 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 hey. For some of you, it's, it's settled. You do believe. You do know. And today is your day of salvation. So you come. You come. Take somebody by the hand and just say, I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed. He died on a cross for me. He arose from the dead for me. I'm not ashamed to stand here before these people and say, I confess that Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. God bless you. I'm going to keep praying. Corey, you lead us. And I invite you to come, even now.